Hello and welcome to episode number 332 of the Armin Show podcast. We have been learning more science, creativity, nonfiction. If you haven't subscribed, subscribe, leave a rating, whatever it is, support the show as we continue on through 2022. On this one here, we have someone bringing the electricity, if you will, the author of a recent book called The Voltage Effect. This is John A. List. The book is How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. John here is American economist at the University of Chicago, serves as Kenneth C. Griffin Distinguished Service Professor and from 2000, 2012 to 2018. He served as the chairman of the Department of Economics, and he joins us here today. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Armin. It's time to learn, huh? It is time to learn. This is true. Long live learning. I, I posted about that yesterday, like a quote about learning and how you should do it continually. Absolutely. Now, on this one, by the way, your book, Supercharged. Supercharged. <laughs> it's like a high voltage Armin. High voltage. It just came out on Tuesday, last Tuesday. So I hope everyone uh, has a chance to take a look at it. This is true. I could barely keep it on the table because it might short circuit the it's building. Short circuit everything. <laughs> <laughs> you need a GFCI. This is cool. Now, before we get into the book, you're a professor. Why are you a professor and not an accountant or some sort of other category? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a professor because I love to teach. Um, alongside teaching, being a professor allows me to do research and allows me to do research in areas that I think can help change the world. Now, I do moonlight a bit. I moonlight as the chief economist at Lyft. So I've been the chief economist at Lyft for four years. And before that, I was a chief economist at Uber for two years. So while I love being a professor, and that's where my heart is, is in the academy, I also have a toenail or maybe a full toe in the business world as well. I like that part. As I was reading, I was thinking, this is great because you have the in-world experience, and then you're also discussing it to the people. That's the best of both worlds. Is it? Are most people, uh, your colleagues, in a similar way, or are they more like no. just a professor? Yeah, I think I'm pretty unusual uh, regarding working outside the, the ivory tower. I, I would say most of my colleagues are 100% in the ivory tower. Occasionally, they might do expert witness work. And what I mean by that is a firm might be sued for antitrust, and they might hire one of my colleagues to help them and be an expert witness in court. But um, I think it's pretty rare that somebody will go out and be a chief economist, for example, of a firm. But I do think that's changing. And I think it's changing because organizations are beginning to understand that there's true value in bringing in academics, and not only an academic who can unlock the secrets of what's in the academic journals, but also to develop uh, new ways to think about problems, new ways to analyze data, new ways to use economics within the firm. I thought it was cool that you showed the insights of the decisions that firms have to make because we see it from the outside as a consumer, oh, this thing showed up or this marketing item or this deal. But behind the scenes is hopefully like split testing and can this work, can this not work in the long term? And you talk a lot about scaling. Do you like being behind the scenes and testing out ideas with the company as the base for your efforts? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Um, I love partnering with firms for two reasons. One, they give access to a wealth of data and a wealth of opportunities that as a person who does field experiments, um, a company like Uber and Lyft are, are really a wonderful playground. So on the one hand, it allows me to test my economic theories. It allows me to write about them. For example, writing the voltage effect. But then we can also put those ideas to um, scale and, and put them to use. This is not doing something to simply write an academic journal or an academic book it's to actually put it in motion. And, and that part of it is, is very gratifying. You know, I've worked with 
with governments for 25 years and working with governments is the same way. Um, they have a problem, I might have a solution and we can not only learn about it scientifically, but we can also put it in action. When I was seeing that, I was thinking of a marketing individual I know who said they were really glad to be able to use large companies' marketing ability to test out their theories. And so that made me think of the same way that you're doing it, but yours was in the economic space. It's like having a big base of testing that you can't do on your own. Yeah. No, you're 100% right. There's no way, for example, I have a nationwide experiment on tipping. And uh, the facts around tipping, uh, my group uh, helped roll out the, the tipping app on Uber. And we did that in a way that we could explore some facts around tipping. Where else would I be able to do that, Armin, right? I can't do that here. <laughs> I don't have the access to millions of drivers and millions of customers. So it ends up giving a Petri dish that is like no other. You mentioned scaling a lot in the book. The voltage effect, what is it? And how much is the voltage effect connected with scaling an idea beyond a small kernel? Absolutely. So I think the voltage effect is the next economic law. So when you take economics, you learn about the law of demand. You learn about the law of supply, a few other laws. The voltage effect is when you have an initial research finding or you test it out in a small market, your idea from Uber in a small market, when you scale that up to beyond the Petri dish to bigger markets, bigger areas, invariably what happens is you get a very different level of voltage. Okay, so what do I mean by voltage? Um, I started a preschool in 2010 in Chicago Heights. In the preschool, from that, we found great results. It was teaching three, four, and five-year-olds. And we found great results. Now, the stylized fact is when you scale that up beyond Chicago Heights to the rest of Chicago, the rest of Illinois, the rest of the world, what will happen is there will be a huge voltage drop. So what you observe in the Petri dish is a great big mountain of a result but when you scale it, it ends up being minuscule or a shell of itself. So that's in the book, I call that a voltage drop, but that's a big part of the voltage effect is your results at scale are very different than your results in the Petri dish. Right. Now you break up the book into two parts that has five sections. Each one is part one, can your idea scale? And you know, part two, secrets to the high voltage scaling. Can it scale? I like this part because you break down the elements that could cut it off before it could get to proliferation of sorts, which every company that we know of that continues or a successful idea had to go through these steps successfully or else they would no longer be there. Now, well, first, what are, what are a couple of examples of corporations or ideas or concepts that have scaled successfully? No, absolutely. So... Um... One good example is uh, Jonas Salk in the polio vaccination. That, that kind of, this will illustrate the five vital signs too, as we walk through what Jonas Salk had to do. So Jonas Salk, like any good scientist, he had an idea and then he tested it out on his own kids. I do that a lot too. I test out my ideas on my own kids. And the fact that I have twins one twins at UCLA, one twins at Harvard. I have the great control group just built in. So I have a great uh, experimental Petri dish. And beat that. But, but okay, so Salk tries it out on his kids. It works. The polio vaccination works. But then he wants to make sure that it's not a false positive. So is this result real? That's vital sign number one. Do you have voltage? So then what he did is he tested again and again, he found that he had voltage. Okay, vital sign number two is figure out the slice of the pie that your idea can capture. So now what Sulk had to do is he tried it out on all kinds of different kids, uh, black, brown, white, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
It worked for everyone. Okay, so that's really good. Now, every idea doesn't need to work for everyone. The idea can work for 10% of the population and it could be a great idea. Yeah. But in this case, this is a high voltage, a really uh, big chance. Now, the third pillar or vital sign that I talk about in the book, I call it, is it the chef or is it the ingredients? Now, in this case, let, let me just give you an example of this third vital sign. Um, a lot of restaurants try to scale. Most of them fail. And most of them fail because their secret ingredient was something like the chef. So anytime you have a chef who she's just brilliant and makes this first restaurant so tasty and so popular, you want a hundred restaurants immediately. The problem is that chef can only be in one of them. Um, humans don't scale. So if your restaurant secret sauce is, for example, the ingredients, like think about Domino's, uh, it might be the pepperoni, it might be the sauce, it might be the cheese, might be the sausage, whatever. But if you can replicate those ingredients at scale, you have an idea that's scalable. Okay, so, so the idea in vital sign number three is, let's make sure that what we're doing in the Petri dish, we can replicate those inputs at scale. So now let's go back to salt. Here's a problem that we face with uh, COVID vaccinations too, is it's hard to get them in people's arms. And the beauty behind Salk was they leveraged the public healthcare system to get every baby a vaccination for polio. So what I mean by that is, Armin, I don't know, have you ever had a child? Do you have any kids? I do not. No kids, okay. Here's what's gonna happen when you have kids. I have eight of them, so I know. Um, eight's my cool number. I like the number eight. Exactly. It's cool. Turn on its side and you have infinity. Um, <laughs> so you, you have a child, baby comes out. Um, they whisk the baby away, do some testing, give it some vaccinations. They say, come back in six months, more vaccinations. Come back in 12 months, more vaccinations. Within that cycle, they receive the polio vaccination. So it's almost free in a way that I'm going to bring my child back for the checkup. And if you naturally give my child the vaccination, it's really no extra cost to me. So it's a way to get it into the baby or people's no. arms. No, That's sure. the hard part a lot of times about, about medication or, or drugs is that we don't actually always adhere to them. So in this case, you, it works. The, the fourth vital sign is spillovers. A lot of our ideas have spillovers in that the actions of one person affect others. And the polio vaccination is great because once you get it, you can't give it to others. So once you get a, a certain level of vaccination rates, now we have herd immunity. So that's really nice. And then the fifth vital sign is you should take care to understand how much will it actually cost you to do all of this? Because so far we've just talked about benefits, like the four types of, of uh, benefit profiles or the four vital signs on the benefit side. There's also how much does it cost your firm to produce the goods? And this is called economies or diseconomies of scale. So every good idea will have some notion of economies of scale. And what that means is the more you produce, you become more and more efficient at producing it so you can sell it for a lower price and still make profits. That's true. The, the value of having a larger entity like that. As you are scaling in these uh, five elements you mentioned in one of the chapters, is it the chef or the ingredients, the non-negotiables and the negotiables? With something like a chef, that's non-negotiable if the exact chef and their experience is needed. What are some examples of non-negotiables that may apply for a company or a concept? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of times you might think about a teacher or a, a person who is in, an important actor in the firm. Um, if that important actor is the secret sauce or if that important person in the business is the secret sauce, 
that person won't scale. So that goes all the way from, you know, does your program have to have great teachers? If it does, it won't scale. If you think about um, programs like membership programs or um, programs that involve getting people to give money up front, uh, a lot of times you can get a few people to do that, but it's really hard to get a lot of people to do that because it's something that people don't like to do is, is spend money up front and then get the benefits later. So the elements of the non-negotiables and negotiables, they're, they're pieces in every business idea. So think about smart thermostats. Smart thermostats, engineers said are, are gonna be the next big thing to not only save people money, but also to save carbon emissions. So a smart thermostat, you put it in your house and what happens is it moderates the temperature in your home for you. So when you're gone, it will use less energy. When you're sleeping, it uses less energy. And it's a way that moderates the temperature so everyone's better off. Now, the engineers projected that these thermostats would lead to huge profits for firms and huge savings for customers. What ended up happening is they sold these thermostats and they got put in people's homes and then people undid the presets to them. So with what the what the engineers thought is that they're kind of selling these thermostats into a Commander Spock population where Commander Spock, of course, is an unswervingly rational agent who never makes any mistakes. When actually what they were doing is selling these things into a bunch of Homer Simpsons. So the Homer Simpson would undo the presets. And in our big experiment, which is in California, we use in hundreds of thousands of households. What we find is the Homer Simpsons undo the presets entirely. So there are exactly no savings of these um, thermostats. So now that's super important because we didn't understand the property of the situation in the Petri dish, what the engineers assumed were these 100% rational people who were gonna use the good. But in the end, humans aren't 100% rational. They make mistakes. They, they uh, have problems. And in this case, it's a complete collapse at scale because at rollout, it does no good. This is something that you always have to think about on the back end when you're putting something out there. Do you think about like a baseline that everything can fall into as far as decisions that people can make? Because um, there might be an idealization that it'll work out this way, but there has to be like something at the bottom where it can't go less than that. Do you think about it that way? No, you're 100% right. Yeah, yeah. I think about those as guardrails. So when we have a new product, we want to make sure that we understand where to put the guardrails. But we understand what are the, in a way, it's a rationality constraint of our customers. Um, firms don't do this enough. What firms most of the time view it as this is a Commander Spock problem. And when we sell it, the customers will figure it out. They'll, they'll uptake it. And it's the exact opposite. You have to understand before shipment, what are the issues and where are people going to have problems? And we tend not to do that enough. And we tend not to set up as many guardrails as we need to. I've thought about this concept in many categories because when you're actually doing things, you have to run across this concept. Before you do things, you can imagine it as a perfect scenario. But once you get into it, you realize, oh, not everything worked out as I would have desired. There's 18 different inputs. Maybe this was not used. This was not considered. That person's too busy for this. And suddenly your thing is like way smaller than your grand vision of sorts. I've noticed that in like socializing too with people, you have to set things up fully or else uh, your plan does not go to plan because you didn't take into account location or where you were going or every item of it. Yeah. No, you're hundred percent right. And the imagination has difficulty going beyond your current self and your current situation. And the imagination has a, has a very hard time conceiving of, the multitude of situations that your product might be selling into. 
And, and that's why it's so important early on to do very fast multi-site trials, because when you do it across very different people in very different situations, you begin to learn quickly um, what are going to be the issues with different populations of people. And then you go back to the drawing board if necessary to make sure that what you roll out can actually work. And you want that to happen, those learnings to happen in the smaller scale multi-site trials because you don't want this to blow up in your face because a lot of times once you put something out there, it might be difficult to reel it back in. Want to get the rough edges out before it gets larger. Absolutely. Understanding people, I like that. You mentioned in the book, you're meeting with, uh, we'll call it leader of Uber, Travis Kalnick, yeah. and also of Lyft, and uh, reading people very quickly. Have you always had a quick sense? Do we all, as people, have a quick sense of how we'll mesh with people? What do you take away from the first 10, 20, 30 seconds of meeting somebody? No, absolutely. I think most people mess that up entirely. And it's called theory of mind. And most people have terrible theory of mind. So theory of mind is the ability to put yourself in the shoes of someone else. And it's one part natural instinct. And in the other part is you can learn it and work on it. So if you don't have good theory of mind, what I would urge you to do is always think about when I'm talking to somebody, what are the incentives that that person is being guided by? Because in my own research, what I find is once I understand what the person wants, or once I understand the person's guiding, guiding light, or what are their underpinnings or their underlying motivations. The key to economics is understand what are the incentives, the constraints, and the preferences of the other person. And once you understand those, you have a really good feel for, can I help them? And, and in what ways can I help this person? Sometimes you'll find that it's the null set. Sometimes you'll find, look, what the person wants to do and what they need is something I can't provide. Then I think you quit. I, I don't think people quit enough, as I talk about in chapter eight, which we'll get to in the book. Um, we tend not to quit enough. And it's because quitting has become repugnant. And quitting shouldn't be repugnant. But, but nevertheless, theory of mind is important in, under, in understanding the other person's underlying motives is the first step of having good theory of mind in being able to read people. I like this because this is specific to me. When I hear things of a certain form, I can't take it in. But here, the way you described it is a good way for me to take in, like a way to have more empathy. Because yeah. now I'm, okay, what are the things we can connect on? These are the things that you value. If somebody wants strawberries and I don't have strawberries, let's say simple form, then there's only so much I can do, but if I can figure out that they would like connection or something, yeah. now there's room to go with. That's great. Then there's no like uh, discontinuity. And it's, it's those times when you don't match, uh, align with their interests for too long that there's friction and they're wondering like, why are you doing this? You're continually not giving me what I'm looking for. Hey, absolutely. Look, um, I think Einstein said something like, if you keep trying the same problem in the exact same way, that's the definition of insanity. Right. So I think if you find out early on that the way in which you can help them is not exactly what they need, to keep trying it over and over again doesn't make sense. And if you're not any good at the alternative way to do it, cut bait, right? Cut bait and, and go do something else because... Life is way too short to waste their time, and it's really way too short to waste your own time. So that's okay. Um, I've walked away from a lot of very influential people and a lot of people who could have helped my career because the bottom line is I couldn't really help them. And there's no reason. I'm not into this fake it till you make it type of thing. Um, people are getting put in jail for that now. I understand out in uh, Silicon Valley, but... Um, you know, I use science to think about problems and I use science to scale and everything else for me is, is sort of ancillary. You just made me think of, there's another podcaster. I know his name is Srinivas Rao 
and he's interviewed many people and he talks about how it's not about having these high profile guests or the certain guests, but people you mesh with, or there's a link or there's something actually there is way more valuable than having the president. I mean, it's nice, but the idea is the value is in the person right next to us or the person we actually connect with at our ability versus there's just some numbers or items associated with it, but there's not utility or some sort of alignment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's a loss of sort. Now, the opposite of low voltage, which is what we are not desirous of and is a sign of leaving that to be, would be high voltage. And just like four secrets to high voltage scaling is the second section of the book. Can you let us know a bit about how to get things ramped up, if you will? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so you're right. After you figure out you have a good idea and it's been launched or just for any business manager right now, I think the first half of the book tells them how to think about new ideas. And the second half of the book thinks about how to maintain high voltage of ideas they've already launched. And these are four, what I call four little behavioral economic secrets. And these are secrets that I saw firsthand. And when I worked in the white house 20 years ago, um, when I work, it with firms. When I work in the academy, you have the same mistakes made over and over again. So the first little behavioral economic secret is you don't always need money as an incentive. Uh, in a lot of cases, people think, well, to incentivize people, we need money. And sure, money can help, but a lot of times money isn't scalable because I have a unlimited amount of resources. And if I need to scale, I might not have the resources that I need in hand. So there, what I talk a lot about is I take lessons from Uber tipping. And I say, well, what can we learn from what we did at Uber when we rolled out tipping? I talk about what's called the clawback. So I used a, an incentive scheme whereby Instead of using the traditional way to incentivize people, which is work for a year and then get your end of year bonus. That's great, right? Nothing wrong with that. I said, well, what if we, instead of at the end of the year, gave them the money, we gave them the money at the beginning of the year. And we said, look, we're going to sign a contract. Here's your $10,000. And if you don't perform, you have to give me some of that money or all of it back. What we find, we've done this now with Chicago Heights school teachers, uh, workers all around the world. What you find is using that scheme, you get a lot better outcomes. And some workers even like it because they argue it serves as a good commitment device. They say, you know, I never really thought I needed a commitment to work hard, but I don't want to lose that money. So the concept that we're, we're talking about here is called loss aversion. Loss, I was going to say. Yeah, exactly. And it's what Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky talked about a long time ago, which is if you can frame things as losses rather than gains, the human mind tends to code losses as more severe as comparable gains. So really, we leverage that in terms of framing the incentives. We, we did that with manufacturing line workers in China, and we find that we can really in, increase production. So you, we also talk about in that chapter, um, non-financial incentives and how non-financial incentives such as peers or social pressure or social preferences, how each of these can serve very important roles to get people motivated and to get people to, whether you're a government or a firm, to get people to do the right thing. And um, so that that's a, unpacks a bunch of secrets in that chapter. The next chapter is on, on marginal thinking. And the, the secret here is that most of the time we look at data and we make decisions based on averages. So as an example, I talk about an example from the White House in this chapter, but also one, let's talk about one from Lyft. So, so at Lyft, 
One of our problems that we constantly face is we always are looking for new drivers. So we have a driver acquisition team at Lyft. We had one at Uber too. So what that driver acquisition team is supposed to do is first bring in great drivers and second, do it in a cost-effective way. So one thing we do is we advertise on Google and we advertise on Facebook to acquire new drivers. So I was sitting in a meeting and the driver acquisition team was presenting a bunch of data. And what they showed was on average, the last thousand drivers that we hired on Facebook cost $500. And the last thousand drivers that we hired through Google cost 750. So then they said, because of that, the next tranche of dollars we're gonna spend on Facebook ads. Makes sense, we do this right. all the time. So I said, well, wait a second. Can you tell me about the last 50 drivers on Facebook and Google? How much did they cost? They said, well, we don't have that just yet, but we'll, we'll get back to you on that. When they sent me the data, those, those things flipped. So what happened was now with Facebook, it was roughly $800 a driver for the last 50. And with Google, it was like 600. So I was like, wait, um, just the last few marginal thinking. Marginal thinking means take thinner slices of the data because now, now they said, wow, we're not only going to go forward with Google now, we would have loved to take back the money that we did with the last 50 because we would have saved a lot of money. So, so that's marginal thinking. And a lot of times we make errors when, when making decisions because we think in terms of averages, not margins. The, the third little secret is quitting. And uh, this is near and dear to my heart, as you probably read. I started out this chapter talking about my, um, my dream of being a golf professional. So really the only reason why I went to college is because I got a partial golf scholarship and it was to chase my dream of being a golf professional. I'm a first-gen college kid. So this was foreign to my family, but I could count, you know, my family would say, well, why do you need education? We've, we've always had high school degrees and we have a great life, which we did. We've had a wonderful life. But I, I sort of wanted to do something other than being a truck driver, which is what my grandpa did and my dad and my brother, my brother's doing right now. So I went to college and I realized very quickly that I wasn't good enough and I never would be good enough to be a golf professional. So I quit that dream, but it was hard to quit because I was, I was raised in Wisconsin and in the sixties and seventies, this was the land of Vince Lombardi. So people are going to watch the Super Bowl. The trophy is named the Lombardi trophy. He's the famous coach of the green Bay Packers who was a hardcore old school guy who said, winners never quit and quitters never win. So that's what society teaches us, right? Society teaches us that quitting is repugnant. And if you quit, you're a damn loser. Um, so society tells us we shouldn't quit. And there's also something internal that causes us not to quit. And that's, we tend to be very narrow-sighted. And what I mean by that is most people don't look to change jobs until their current job gets soiled, right? Their boss stops appreciating them. They don't get a pay raise. The, the job just isn't as attractive as it used to be. A coworker rubs you the wrong way. And then you start looking around. That's because we neglect opportunity cost of time. We totally ignore it. We don't recognize that when I'm doing this job, that means I can't do these other jobs outside. So I don't look outside at my opportunity set as much as I should. Everyone should periodically take a look, whether it's an apartment, a new house, a relationship, a job, take a look at your opportunity set. And if that has changed and gotten a lot better, that should cause you to quit your job just as much as your current job going, going south. 
causes you to quit. So I have some science around that too. Steve Levin and I designed an experiment that showed if you can induce some people to quit earlier in the long run, they're happier. So that's a little secret. Now, uh, uh, on like the word quitting, we should be calling this an audible or pivoting. Because if you go to your mom and say, mom, I called an audible or mom, I pivoted, mom will be proud. But if you go to her and say, mom, I quit, mom's not going to be so proud, right? <laughs> because quitting has a really bad uh, connotation. So I think as a society, we need to stop telling people to keep going down a dry hole and, and keep digging deeper and deeper. If it's a dry hole, it's a dry hole. Uh, if there's no gold in the mine, there's no gold in the mine. You're not going to find gold in the mine that isn't actually there. So why spend our entire lives doing something that's a false pit? Um, so that's, my, that's you know, number three, my little secret. And then my, my fourth little secret is culture. And culture is sort of a word like, let's say critical thinking or creativity. These are words that are hard to define, but once we see them, we know it's the good stuff. Now I define culture in that chapter and I talk about the culture at Uber, which wasn't that great. And then I talk about some villages that I visited in Brazil called the Kabuchu villages where all the work is done in teams and then they bring back from the work environment to the community. And it's just a glorious community of uh, civility, public good provision, et cetera. And I talk about how a firm or an organization can build their own Kabuchu from the very beginning. It's nice to build something with a good base. And when you see a good base from afar, you're like, I like that. I want part of that. How does that work? Makes you feel good. Absolutely. One thing that comes to mind going back to the quitting concept is so important. That one resonated with me strongly is when you are doing well or prolific in some category, something is going smoothly. That's the golden time to continue your thing. But also, what should I be? That's I should be reaching out now versus letting it come to a down. Now you're not as happy. Things are not going well. Now you're searching, but your position is not as good to look for things. This is like a triple loss or double loss or something. Whereas up here, some people will be maybe jealous or annoyed with you because you're reaching for more and more, but they would disappear if you went down here anyway. So they're not really on your team regardless. No, no, let me, and you're 100% right. And the way I think about it too is if I'm a firm who wants to either buy back shares or, or I want to sell more shares, if I know that I'm at an all-time high and I'm never going to be there again, I'm not going to buy back shares. I'm going to sell them. And when I'm at a trough, I'm buying back. I'm not selling then. So you're exactly right. Why, why as humans, why should we wait until the trough to go out and try selling? Because your, your stuff isn't that good. If you would have been looking at peak time, we might be in business, right? Such a loss. And then at this time, everybody wants to work with you. You're looking great. Yeah. No issues are really showing up. You might see a couple starting to foment, but they haven't really built. And you might not even get there because now, okay, I pivoted to something else, not quitting. And the concept of quitting has this uh, sunk cost fallacy to it. Like I've spent so much time, but let's just add more time to it. And more time is tossed away. Absolutely. Absolutely. One thing on split testing that came to mind uh, from earlier is what does it not take care of behind the scenes? If you go into a company yeah. and you test out 10 different options or four different options of something, what can that be missing? No, absolutely. I think that AB or split testing is only the first step. And it's not even the most important step in discovery or using data. And here's what I mean by that. Um, so let's use an example of discrimination. And, and this will sort of give you a, a light into the way I think about problems. So I, I've worked a lot on discrimination in measuring discrimination in markets. So I can do an A-B test and I can find that there's discrimination in nearly every market. So women are discriminated in this market. Um, one type of race is discriminated against in another market, et cetera, et cetera. That's what split testing will do for you. But 
you need to do subtreatment analysis to figure out why is discrimination occurring. So let's continue with this example. In economics, there are two major theories of discrimination. One is people just discriminate because they don't like uh, that type of person or a, a person from that group. So anyone who's in an out group, I'm going to discriminate because I get satisfaction from discriminating against that out group person. Another kind of discrimination is called third degree price discrimination. And Pagu talked about this a long time ago in economics. What this is about is, you know what? I don't dislike or like that person, but I'm charging them a higher price because I'm trying to make more money. And I know that people from that group can pay more money. So I don't dislike them. I'm charging them a higher price because I want to make more money. Now, it's very, very important to figure out why prices are higher in one case versus another in which of these underlying motivations are at work. Because if we want to set up government regulation to take on discrimination, I need to know what are the underpinnings? Is it this person just has a taste for discrimination? They just have a taste to hurt somebody? Or is it that they're trying to make more money? Um, if it's a taste for discrimination, now we have to talk about things like Rooney rules in the NFL and quotas. But if it's a statistical discrimination thing or third degree price discrimination, we might want to think about education and making sure that the people who are discriminated against, they should no longer be discriminated against because maybe they just don't understand or they don't know how to negotiate or they don't know how to bargain. That's totally different than the underpinnings of, I just don't like you because you're in my out group. And, and that kind of example, you know, why do people tip? Uh, why do people give to a charitable cause? Why do women earn less than men in labor markets? Every problem, there is a why behind it. And A-B testing or split testing will give you a measure of the problem, but you need to go underneath the surface to figure out why is there a problem? And then how can I solve it? Different perspective there. When you have gone into companies, have they usually approached it such that you are uh, solving discrepancies that they have, or you are putting them on the offense strategically uh, in an economic way? No, absolutely. It's both. Um, so there, and it, it was both at Uber, it's been both at Lyft, it's been both at Walmart, I help, uh, help a lot of firms. Um, it's a mixed bag. And in some cases, they're getting attacked, either by a competitor, or by an interest group. And it's, you know, let's look at our data and see how we can solve that. In other cases, it's time to go on the offensive. And whether that means innovation of a new product, so I'm very proud of the products that we shipped at Uber and Lyft. For example, the Apologies product. Um, Apologies came from my group because I got a bad trip on Uber. And I got a bad trip. And that night I called Travis and let him know what I thought about his blankety blank app. And I said, you know what, TK? The worst part about this is I never even received an apology. And TK said, we haven't gotten to that yet. And I said, we have now. So I did a bunch of work around bad trips and how much does it cost Uber for each bad trip? Tens and tens of millions of dollars per quarter. And then I developed an apologies program whereby within an hour after you receive a bad trip, we send an apology to you with a coupon, $5 off coupon. We can undo close to 33% of the bad stuff of the bad trips just with that program. So I'm very proud that we shipped that. And that's kind of undoing the bad stuff of a bad trip, but it's also innovative because nobody else was doing that at the time in Rideshare. And it's a way to capture people who had gotten bad trips from Lyft. So it's really, now at Lyft, there are a lot of new products called Walk and Save and Wait and Save. A lot of those come from the work that we've done on how people value their time. So we did a nationwide field experiment on the value of time. 
And what we found is some groups are willing to give up a little bit of time or even walk somewhere to get a lower price on their ride. And now you can look at Lyft's app. We have all kinds of new products in there that are good for the consumer. They're good for the consumer because we've differentiated and given the consumers what they've wanted. Always looking at the consumer. What are some economic philosophies or concepts that you usually apply to many of the items that you do? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one is marginal thinking. It's um, every decision that we make, we should be thinking marginally. Um, two is, you know, it's simply theory of mind. And that's a psychological concept, but it's also a game theoretic concept. So in game theory, the solution concept is backward induction. And with backward induction, you want to think about if we advertise today, are we going to have to advertise tomorrow? Will our competitor do the same? And then how will the customers respond? And then you want to go down a bunch of different channels and say, okay, which is my most preferred channel? And then I want to backward induct and act today in a manner that's going to make that most likely channel happen. So backward induction and game theory are always important concepts that we're putting in. That's in life, by the, by the way. Um, you know, thinking on the margin, I think comparative advantage is always something that a lot of times people think they're good at everything. And if you think you're good at everything, you're actually good at nothing. It's, you know, all successful people are both monomaniacal and they understand their comparative advantage. If I'm good at something and I love it, I do that. I don't try to do other things. So I think those are kind of some economic concepts that really are pervasive in in really every walk of life, whether it's government or non-government or for-profit or non-profit. That's a cool set right there. Are there any key people that come to mind that have guided you a lot? Uh, I know there's a lot of uh, research that you would look at, but is there any key individuals maybe from even the past or current yeah. that come to mind as like a guiding force? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of them starts with my parents, um, of course, and then uh, my wife. Um, you know, professionally, I, I started down the path of doing field experiments in the early 90s, and uh, everyone thought I was crazy. As a grad student, I would go to baseball card shows, and I was a baseball card dealer, and I would test economic theory. And I thought, this is really neat. I should do this for science. And back then, nobody was doing field experiments. So most people said, you're crazy, but there's this guy named Jay Shogren, who's a professor at the University of Wyoming, who really believed in me early on and believed in field experiments. And that was somebody who, I think if I wouldn't have found a person like Jay, it would have been hard because as a grad student, you're sort of lost. You, you know, you have a guiding light, but you also need some reinforcements. Um, and then on top of that, I had a great advisor named Shelby Gerking who was always in my corner as well. You know, you can ask, well, why didn't he believe in field experiments? He just wasn't an experimentalist. So he, he was a, uh, a person who works with mounds and mounds of data that somebody else gives him. So, so he was always like a second dad as well. Um, and then kind of working through the years, you know, Travis gave me a start as a chief economist. That was very helpful. Uh, Logan Green has been wonderful. Uh, the co-founder at, uh, at Lyft. And, and there are just, uh, along the way, there have just been hundreds of people that without each of their bricks in my wall, I, I would be just a shell of, of what my career has become. It's amazing that people don't understand the amount of luck and the amount of good fortune that you need to meet the right people along the way. And then to understand that this is a person who I want to partner with. And who I want to, who I want to be part of my career and part of my life, people don't take that as seriously as they should, and they don't seek out as many people as they should. As a young academic or a young professional, people tend to want to be the lone wolf or the maverick, and I think that's a big mistake. 
that that a lot of people make because the wisdom of an older, more mature person, it, you can't buy that in store. The value of the people who believe in you along the way, those few and the ones that resonate with you too, is huge. Though suddenly it's like, oh, okay, an open room for me to connect with finally. And then you forget about anybody else along the way that didn't believe in you or you didn't connect with because that's something you should quit on. Quitting is for winners in that way. No, you're right. Look, those, those, everyone has naysayers and everyone has people who don't believe. You got to put them in the rear view mirror and say, look, I wish you well, but, but I don't have time for this. There are too many other people to work with and too many other people to listen to. It's, I'm, not, I'm not saying that anytime somebody says something bad to you, you neglect it. I'm not saying that. That's called confirmation bias. And I talk about that in chapter one. A lot of times we make mistakes because we have an idea and we neglect what the naysayers are, are saying or we neglect it because we're only looking for data that confirms uh, what we believe. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is in your camp, you're going to have people who enjoy to be around you and really want to help you and believe in you. And then you have to decide yourself when to quit or when not to quit. You use the wisdom of others, but you can't put full stock in that. If you had to speak on a megaphone to all people of the planet, what is one thing you would want them to take away from the voltage effect? Oh, great question. I would say that going through life with an understanding of a little bit of economics can not only make your life a lot better, but it can make everyone else's life a lot better. So to understand, read the book and understand a little bit about the economic way of thinking, because the, the book's about scaling, but it's about much more than scaling. It's about how can I conduct my life to make sure that I get the most out of myself and I reach my frontier, my economic frontier, and everyone around me is made better too. So I think this is a way of thinking and a way of going through life. That, that's what I would, I want to change the way in the mistakes that people typically make. Nice guiding force and spoken in a way that I am able to take in as well. Professor John A. List, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode of the show, shared some messages from this book right here and guiding us through some economic concepts that we can apply to business, but also some of our life paths. Armin, thanks so much for having me and may the voltage be with you. And we are out.